The sun is setting on our last night in Japan. It's time to kick back with a Suntory whiskey at the Park Hyatt Tokyo. I'm Sarah Rovang. And I'm John Golden. And you're listening to Sundowners, conversations about architecture, place, and global travel. Konbanwa, Sarah. Konbanwa, John. Can you believe it's our last night in Japan? Yes and no. It's kind of been the longest, shortest two months of my adult life. But here we are, packing our bags and getting ready to head to Chile. We spent the last week of our time here in Tokyo, and it's been a nice way to wrap up our time in Japan. But I think there has been a sense of mounting exhaustion that has made it really hard to do the adventuresome exploring that we were doing just a few weeks ago. Two highlights of the past week were two very different but enjoyable day trips to Tokyo Disney Sea and Yokohama. Disney Sea was a kind of pleasurable reset button after a few tiring days of writing, and also surprisingly intellectually productive. Be sure to read the newsletter this week to find out why. And Yokohama was surprisingly scenic, and after seeing a lot of depressing post-industrial zones on this trip, definitely proof positive, I'd say, that successful redevelopment is possible. So, if you've been keeping up with Sundowners, you've probably caught on to some recurring themes of our time in Japan over the past eight episodes. Like the fact that the culture shock was more severe than we expected, or that the industrial heritage aspect was challenging but really rewarding at the same time. And also that Japan is a very rich, multifaceted place that supports multiple and sometimes contradictory readings simultaneously. It seems like we really wouldn't be doing this whole experience justice to try and tie things together nicely with this one last podcast from Japan. So instead of waxing poetic and trying to make big sweeping conclusions, we thought we'd just keep it a little bit silly and share some of our top experiences sorted into categories that we've chosen to give a good idea of what daily life was like on the road in Japan. So, without further ado, we bring you Japan, Top 4 Edition. First up, Top 4 Tokyo Disney Sea Experiences. First, we should explain. Tokyo Disney is actually two separate parks. There's Disneyland, which is basically just what you'd find in California, and then there's Disney Sea, which is an entirely new theme park. And many of the online Disney cognoscenti, more on that in a second, call Tokyo Disney Sea the best Disney park in the world. So we had to check it out. And coming in at number four on our list of top Disney Sea experiences is the food. Yeah, it was surprisingly good and reasonably affordable, particularly compared with restaurant prices in Tokyo. We had some halfway decent Rubens at an extremely well-themed New York deli some tasty Yucatan sausage rolls outside the Indiana Jones ride, and a fun chicken curry bun in the shape of a tiger. The craziest thing about the food at Tokyo Disney Sea, though, is the popcorn, which people here just go crazy for. It comes in different flavors. There's caramel, black pepper, strawberry, and the big deal, apparently, is to get them in these commemorative plastic tubs in various shapes, like Mickey Mouse's head, of course. But there were queues, honestly, over an hour long for the popcorn, which cost like $30. Yeah, that must be how they subsidized the whole park. But anyway, on to our number three top experience at Tokyo Disney Sea: single rider line hopping. So we were standing in the epic line for the Indiana Jones ride. And seriously, the lines at Tokyo Disney can get famously long, some of the worst in the world. But if you don't 
absolutely have to sit next to the people in your group and are willing to fill in individual open seats on a ride, you can basically skip right to the front. So John noticed a sign pointing to this at the Indiana Jones ride, and we thought it was too good to be true, but it totally worked. The option did not seem very popular, though, with the predominantly Japanese crowd. Most of whom came in large groups with matching outfits. So it worked super well for us. Okay, all right, on to our number two top experience, DisneyTouristBlog.com. So being the annoying intellectuals that we are, we totally had to research the heck out of our trip to Tokyo Disney before we went. And this is how we stumbled upon this website, DisneyTouristBlog.com. And it is so fascinating. It's written by a couple who I guess have like remote jobs and basically devote all of their energy to traveling around the world and visiting Disney properties. They basically have these incredibly detailed guides and critiques of basically everything you could want to know about Disney parks. As someone who reads a lot of professional criticism, it was so interesting to see someone far down this particular rabbit hole. I mean, I've even worked on tourist spaces and themed environments, and I still learned a lot about how Disney Imagineers create these entirely invented but very convincing built environments. Yeah, I mean, the main author of this blog has like, seriously drank the Disney Kool-Aid, but still takes this sort of interesting, rigorous, critical approach to evaluating the parks. And it's just so interesting, and I'm, I'm really glad we were exposed to it. Okay, here it is, folks. Our number one Tokyo Disney Sea experience. The American Seafront. I mean, it was probably partially homesickness, but the American Seafront area of Disney Sea really resonated with both of us. Both the section that was meant to evoke early 20th century New York and the portion modeled after Cape Cod were remarkably atmospheric and really quite accurate in a lot of ways. Yeah, those Disney Imagineers really dialed in sort of the exact right degree of grittiness for recreating a New England beach even. And the New York portion was a really artful and period-accurate pastiche of styles and building types. The details were also really spot-on, right down to the above-ground power lines that they added in. The highlight of the whole area, though, was probably the Teddy Roosevelt Lounge aboard the SS Columbia. It had a nice balance of whimsy and classiness, I would say, and they made a mean Manhattan, too. It was also just interesting to see how American history is used and interpreted for non-American audiences. Yeah, speaking of history, we visited a lot of actual historical sites during our time in Japan, some of which have been so enjoyable or impressive that we'd be happy to go back. That's right, so our next category is cultural sites we'd be pumped to see again. Coming in at number four on our top four list of cultural sites is the Hagi Castle and Sculpture Park. It's not very often that your castle comes with a contemporary art surprise and that you get to enjoy it almost entirely alone. Yeah, it was this amazing combination of old castle ruins with a really well done contemporary sculpture park, which blended into the ruins almost seamlessly. But it was also the kind of place that worked so well precisely because it wasn't super hyped up. The kind of place that almost feels designed to be stumbled upon. I hope it hangs on to that sort of otherworldly vibe. Okay, so now on to number three on our list of sites to revisit, Shuasaikan. Yeah, I'd love to revisit that when it isn't a thousand degrees outside. But right, yeah, Shuasaikan was this great combination of an elegant traditional house, which was the seat of the Satsuma clan for hundreds of years, 
and highly relevant industrial heritage, you know, the, the shipbuilding infrastructure that the Satsuma clan experimented with on their grounds. And man, the restaurants were such a treat, and the gardens were really pretty. I think we could have easily spent a lot more time there. I'm sad we didn't get to do the hikes around. But okay, now on to number two, Dejima in Nagasaki. Dejima was the island in Nagasaki where all of the Dutch foreigners were housed during the period of Japan's isolation. There's a great sort of living history museum on the island that was one of the best public history experiences we had on the island of Kyushu, I'd say. They're in the process of really bringing the island back to the way it would have been in the early 1800s, which is an ongoing project, and it would be great to visit in a few years and see the progress that they've made. Which brings us then to our number one cultural site we'd like to revisit, the Museum Meiji Mura. This was the open-air architecture museum that we spent some time talking about on the podcast last week. It was definitely a place that I could have feasibly spent several consecutive days. They have about 60 different buildings of various sizes fully restored, and I think when we were there I got to explore maybe 8 to 10 of them. So yeah, it would be great to be able to see every one of those 60 buildings. Yeah, and by the time we visit Japan again we'll probably also be traveling with kids. And the Meiji Mora seemed like a great place for a kid as well. Plenty of room to run around and the fun of just being able to explore all of those different places. Plus, the chance to ride the steam train that runs from one end of the park to the other. Yeah, Meiji Mura was definitely the closest thing to a Disney theme park that we visited outside of Disney Sea, of course. Yeah. Alright, so on to the next list. Our top four most difficult things to find in Japan. It's a long list. It was tough to winnow it down just to four. But number four on the list is... Tampons! Or more accurately, perhaps, tampons designed after 2005. Tampons are a lot less popular here than they are in the U.S., and if you're hoping to find the sort of super teeny aerodynamic pearl sport version of tampons that have been developed in the last couple of years, you are out of luck. Tampons here are pretty much stuck in the early 2000s. So my advice to people with periods, just pack your own. Our third most difficult thing to find, though? Well, it's along those lines, but my eternal quest here in Japan has been for deodorant. Like, you walk into a Walgreens or a CVS equivalent here, and there just isn't deodorant. Do Japanese people not have sweat glands? It's crazy. <laughs> anyway, okay, enough <laughs> of our personal hygiene struggles. On to our number two most difficult thing to find, the infamous Sekiyoshi Sluice Gate of Yoshino Leet. Yeah, this UNESCO industrial site was so hard to find that I actually wrote a whole blog post about the experience entitled In the Land of the Forest Docents. Read it if you haven't already. So I've visited quite a few challenging or difficult to access sites in Japan, but I think this one is the one that still takes the cake. You know, it's never a good sign when the folks at the visitor center have to get out of a, a binder filled with handwritten sticky notes to figure out how to get you to your destination. <laughs> And finally, our most difficult, basically impossible thing to find in Japan, whole grains. <laughs> At one point, Sarah quipped that the Japanese view brown rice like the Koch brothers view public transportation, a scourge to get rid of at all costs. And it really is true. I don't think I saw a single loaf of whole grain bread or brown rice ever or any kind of quinoa or barley or... It's just so at odds with where American cooking is th these days. It's all white everything, and it got really exhausting. Fiber, fiber, please, texture, fiber. I mean, occasionally you could find like a crusty baguette, 
but that was about as close as you got to eating something brown here in Japan. Um, this is just one of the things that made us constantly wonder how Japanese people are so thin. But anyway, okay, onto our next list, the top four business hotels in Japan. Right, so out of the 18 different places that we slept Ugh. while in Japan, <laughs> yeah, we stayed in seven different business hotels, and they kind of became calm, white, sensory deprivation chamber islands in the storm of Japan. Our number four experience was at the JR Hotel in Nagoya. JR stands for Japan Rail, and you could really tell that this tiny little hotel room was designed by the same people who are very good at designing small train spaces. It was very efficient. Definitely, and they had a fun breakfast to boot. Lots more soups and cabbage at breakfast than your standard continental fare. And number three on the list is the very first business hotel we stayed at, Hotel My Stays in Kagoshima. After being in hostels and Airbnbs for a couple weeks, Hotel My Stays was such a welcome respite. We could just crank up the AC and shut the blackout curtains and just recuperate a bit. So our number two top business hotel was the Royal Park Hotel in Hiroshima. That was a, kind of a treat, actually, because they had just opened two days before we got there. So it was a really good yeah, deal. Yeah, th thanks for being on top of that. Yeah, absolutely. And when we were there, all of the employees, of course, were on their best behavior. Uh, not that people here are ever really on bad behavior, but still, it was actually a little creepy how many people were working in the lobby there. Like, every time you got out of the elevator, there would be, I kid you not, like eight people standing there ready just to greet you. It was a bit overwhelming. Though I love that the lobby was literally overflowing with orchids, which are a traditional gift for an opening business, and everything in the room was obviously brand new. Yeah, no, it, it was pretty cool. But our number one business hotel stay in Japan was at Hotel Forza in Nagasaki. I guess a lot of this is tied up with the fact that we enjoyed Nagasaki so much, but the hotel really was nice. It was in a great location with a ton of food right nearby, and the room itself was very well designed. The real highlight, though, was the concierge who helped us make several reservations that could only be done on the phone in Japanese. <laughs> that poor woman was on the phone for like half an hour, scheduling us an ornate lunch and a tour of the Mitsubishi Museum. And she was a champ through it all. And it was actually, her, her birthday was the day before Sarah's while we were there. So we gave her a little origami rose as a thank you slash birthday gift, and she was just so grateful. It, it was all very sweet. Yeah, she was wonderful, and I really liked her comment when we were done with all of those phone reservations. I think my English brain is done now. <laughs> so, our next topic is four most surprising things you can buy at a konbini. And I want to stress that these are things you can buy, not that we did buy. Right, for example, <laughs> number four on our list is the softcore porn. The Japanese have a very different relationship with sexuality than we're used to in the States. And one of the biggest examples of that was the magazine rack in the konbinis, which featured scantily clad women on the cover of all kinds of different magazines. There were no extra plastic wrappers to disguise the content even a little bit. And the magazine rack was always right next to the ATM, which we frequently had to stop by since Japan is basically a cash-only society. So we always got an eyeful on the way to get cash. Yeah, I mean, we're not particularly prudish people, but my lord, have some decency. Anyway, number three on our list is a full businessman outfit. It's kind of like in the States where gas stations have a bunch of trucker gear, but replace truckers with Japanese businessmen. So, you know, white button-down shirts, ties, underwear, etc. 
all right there and, and for pretty cheap too. I mean, I guess it's good for when you're on a trip and spill something on yourself. Yeah, I guess so. So our number two most surprising thing and something that we did frequently avail ourselves of was the highballs. These are basically just scotch and sodas in a can and for about 250 US for a 16 ounce can. I mean, I have no idea why they don't sell canned scotch and soda everywhere. It's a much nicer nightcap than a beer. Yeah, I will really miss those. <laughs> and our number one konbini item really deserves its own top four list. The food. Absolutely, the konbini foodscape was just remarkable. So the number four craziest food you can buy at a Japanese convenience store? Really damn good fried chicken and steamed buns. These are held in a hot case up by the register, and it was so tempting just to pick up a bun or a box of karage, which are basically crispy chicken nuggets, like, whenever we were in one. So I don't know what alchemy they have perfected to get such good fried food in every little konbini across Japan, but God bless them. On the opposite end of the spectrum, though, was what I can only describe as the ubiquitous hot vat of brown water full of indeterminate foodstuffs. It looked so unsanitary. Basically just different little meats and dumplings floating together in the steaming brown water for who knows how long. Ugh. On a slightly better note though, we have number two on our list, what we are calling airplane food. Which I know doesn't sound very exciting, but, but hear me out. Basically what we mean by this is that the konbinis here are chock full of prepared meals that are basically what you could get on an intercontinental airplane flight. Think like a not awful beef short rib or a seafood gratin. So these meals have probably been prepared within the last 24 hours and then they're wrapped in plastic and put in the konbinis. And when you buy them there, they actually just microwave them for right for you and give you utensils and everything. So I think in the States, we're sort of used to thinking of convenience store food as only hot dogs and bad pizza and whatever. But here they really are like full, complete, interesting meals just ready to be microwaved and served. It's so interesting. But maybe not as crazy as our number one kombini food, the bread diaspora. Yeah, our favorite kombini chain, Family Mart, had an astoundingly strange collection of bread products. From donuts filled with curry to hot dog buns filled with chocolate cream, the bread was always interesting, if sometimes challenging. Yeah, the ham and tuna roll always caught me off guard, for sure. And how were all of these things shelf-stable? We may never know, John. <laughs> yeah, I don't want to find out. <laughs> Next up, top four things that weren't quite what we thought they would be. If Japan had any consistent lesson to impart, it was to expect the unexpected. And whenever we started to imagine something one way, quite often our expectations would be entirely shattered. Let's start this with a slightly less dramatic example, though. Coming in at number four on our list of things that weren't quite what we expected is the Yokohama Port International Passenger Terminal. This was a building that we spied from another dock in Yokohama when we were exploring the area a few days ago. From a distance, the building really looked like a lot of global hipster nonsense. You know, like green roof, scenic viewpoints, kind of a vibe similar to like the High Line in New York. We made fun of it, but the closer we got to it, the more curious we became, and eventually we ended up going to check it out. And you know what? It was a really effective and interesting public space. Yeah, this is the building where passengers wait to pick up international cruise ships from Yokohama. And it also has plenty of spaces just to walk around and explore with really lovely views of Tokyo Bay. And whereas I'd guess that this building was built within the past 10 years, just because it seemed so trendy, I learned after a little Googling that it was actually designed in the mid-1990s and constructed in the early 2000s. 
This was really at the forefront of a new kind of public architecture that became popular around the world. I'm really glad we gave it a second look and even stopped to have a beer for, and watch the sunset from the deck. Yeah, it was clear that the High Line copied this. This didn't copy the High Line. So I'll now jump in with number three on our list of things that weren't quite what we thought they would be, the Bic camera stores. Big camera stores are common in most bigger cities in Japan, and when we first got here, we thought they would sell cameras, obviously. But it turns out that the Big Camera is a magical one-stop shopping experience for toiletries, alcohol, designer watches, massive telescopes, toilets, air conditioners, and of course, cameras too. Yeah, right. <laughs> They were, all things considered, one of the easier stores to navigate as visitors to Japan, once we figured out what was going on, and we definitely made some good purchases at Bix across Kyosho and Honshu. Okay, now, let's move on to number two, the island of Takashima near Nagasaki. That definitely wasn't what we thought and also hoped it was going to be. There's a whole story about this in my forthcoming SAH blog, which should be posted within the next couple of days, so I don't want to give too much away. In short, though, the internet led us to believe that we were going to an island with a bustling tourism industry, including a magical swimming beach and snorkeling tours, in addition to a UNESCO industrial site that Sarah wanted to see as part of her Brooks research. And what we found was definitely more depressing and slightly sinister. Uh -huh. An almost entirely abandoned island where we only saw about a dozen or so people over the course of the day and virtually no viable businesses. If you've ever been to Japan, you know, kind of have a sense of how ubiquitous you know, convenience stores and restaurants and grocery stores and just food in general is. You know, it's actually quite difficult to find a full-on food desert, but we definitely did on Takashima. Speaking of which, that segues nicely into number one on our list of things that weren't quite what we were expecting food in Japan more generally. Yeah, I mean, there's just so much to say here. Uh, I'll, I'll try to keep it brief. I mean, obviously there is the sushi and the ramen and the tempura, but the actual lived experience of eating in Japan just was not what I was expecting. For one, it was so much less healthy than I thought it would be. Everything is white and fried and sweet. We actually had this joke about how, how basically everything in Japan was some combination of sweet and fishy. And so many things just did not at all taste how you thought they would, even based on appearances. For example, at one of our very ornate traditional Japanese meals in Nagasaki, there was this little bowl at the end of the meal that seemed to be like a little fruit and dessert bowl. There was like this little grape and a sesame cracker and a small square of jello, some little edible flowers, all resting in like a sweet little sauce. But then, when I actually ate it, the grape was a single large bean and the sesame cracker was some dried fish encrusted in sesame seeds, and the jello was just fish jello. And the sauce was sweet, but also fishy. Like, I tend to think of myself as a pretty adventurous eater, but man, two months of constantly being challenged left and right, it did wear me down quite a bit. And so, correspondingly, as you might expect, during our time in Japan, we had some strong cravings for Western food. And those cravings led us down some, well, shall we say, interesting paths. So our next list is top four experiences with Western food. Coming in at number four is the Suki Six Diner in Tokyo. And we went here pretty much expressly because Sarah saw they had avocado toast on the menu and that sounded real good. I know, I know we're such hipsters. But the, the food was fine and we didn't end up getting the avocado toast. We actually got some egg and cheese sandwich, which was pretty much like what you'd get in the States. Anyway, it was this kind of painfully cute little cafe with paper cutout bats and decorated gourds for Halloween and 
all the other patrons were these very put-together Japanese women, you know, sort of out for a lady's breakfast or something. So here we are in this super cute cafe, and they are just blasting Kanye West on the stereo. I have to assume that no one there understood the lyrics, because even by Kanye standards, these were not songs you want to play in public. But everyone seemed totally oblivious, except for me. I was just laughing up a storm. It was so surreal. Anyway, okay, on to number three, Serenken, one of the world's very best pizzerias. Right, so John had heard about this place online, and it's basically what you get if you take the Japanese-style obsession with craft and apply it to pizza instead of sushi, say. Now, there are only two pizzas on the menu, margarita or marinara, and all of the ingredients are from Japan. But it was easily some of the top pizza we've ever eaten, and it was also really reasonably priced, and just an overall fun place to be. There was beetles on the stereo, which was a great compliment to the food. We had a nice bottle of chilled red wine and some prosciutto, and it was just wonderful. So, at the other end, I guess, of the classiness spectrum, perhaps, <laughs> our number two Western food experience was making nachos in Kyoto. I mean, these are not by any stretch great nachos, but it was kind of the first time in Japan where we really just said, screw it, let's make the kind of food we want. And it was really liberating. It was also kind of the first Airbnb that we were in that had a semi-functional kitchen. And that's even a stretch, but at least there was a microwave. And the nearby grocery store had some tortilla chips and salsa and grated cheese, so we just went for it. And again, by any normal metric, these nachos were eh, kind of questionable, but they tasted really good to us. So, so now, Sarah, hit us up with our number one Western food experience in Japan. Well, keeping with our cravings for Mexican food, I think the best Western meal we had in Japan was at a little Mexican place called Chalapas in Takayama. I think it was the only restaurant we went to twice in all of Japan. <laughs> so good. A lot of things went right about this place. It was super cozy and comfortable, the chef was incredibly nice and welcoming, and the food was pretty much on point. Yeah, and those Coronas hit the spot too. But the real highlight, at least for me, was that the chef had old ZZ Top albums playing on the stereo. And when I complimented him on his choice, we swapped ZZ Top concert stories. I guess he'd seen them many years ago in Yokohama. Those dinners were just so satisfying, both the food and the setting. Yeah. All right. So moving right along then to our next top four list. Now, we've mostly tried to avoid outright complaining or ranting on Sundowners, even though it might not seem like that. <laughs> But our next category is a bit of a chance for us to vent about things that didn't quite resonate with us in Japan. So, here's our list of top four things we did not appreciate about Japan. Coming at number four is how hard it was to navigate the restaurant scene. Restaurants here tend to be very small, and most do not have transparent windows. Instead, you're just faced with a facade of paper screens and doors, and rarely any clue as to whether the building you're looking at is open or what kind of food they serve. We learned recently that the cloth awnings over the door used to signify that a restaurant was open, but now they've mostly just become decorative and are left out all the time. Which certainly doesn't help. And it's impossible to Google a place when you can't even locate the name and characters that you can understand. Yeah, it creates some serious restaurant FOMO. Who knows how many amazing restaurants we've just walked past without knowing what we were missing. Okay, so number three on our list is also restaurant related. And that is the continuing prevalence of smoking in restaurants. That cultural norm changed so quickly in the United States from being everywhere to being virtually non-existent. 
And it's been a real shock to be in a developed country like Japan, where it's pretty usual to smell cigarette smoke, even in very nice restaurants. Lots of hotels still have smoking floors as well, and the smell from that often seeps through to the non-smoking floors, unfortunately. Yeah. So, number two is another aspect of public life that we experienced every day. Being a pedestrian. Much of Japan's urban planning happened in an era before cars and sidewalks are thus very rare and only vague suggestions. It's also incredibly unclear what streets are pedestrian only and which are also for cars. The other big issue with the pedestrian experience here is the prevalence of bikes on sidewalks. There are not a lot of bike lanes and so people just ride their bikes right down the sidewalk. And it really got kind of scary and it was always annoying. But these quibbles pale in comparison to our biggest Japan complaint of all, number one on our list. The ubiquity and amount of plastic packaging. So many times we've tried to buy things from a convenience mart or grocery store only to be confronted by a veritable nesting doll of plastic containers. Almost everything here is individually wrapped to the point of absurdity. Yeah, I'll never forget that package of rice crackers where each one came in its own wrapper. I mean, I guess you could hand them out for Halloween that way. It would be healthy-ish. Unlike South Africa, where people would definitely give you the evil eye if you forgot your reusable bag, cashiers in Japan will give you funny looks if you try to bring your own bag. Well, that also might have just been the fact that our bag says save the whales. <laughs> well, yeah, that's a good point. And it's also compounded by the fact that there are no trash bins basically anywhere in Japan, so you have all of this plastic and nowhere to throw it. Anyway, but there, there were also plenty of things that we genuinely appreciated about Japanese culture, and we will most definitely miss when we leave. Number four on our list of things we'll miss when we leave is... The safety of the urban environment here. You know, especially after being in Johannesburg and Cape Town, where I, I do think that the safety concerns have been sort of overplayed or overstated. Or recently improved. Yeah, exactly. But still, it was pretty nice here in Japan to walk down the street in Tokyo with my DSLR out in one hand and my iPhone in the other without having to worry at all. You know, even in strange or really sort of off-the-beaten-path places, I'd say that we never felt really unsafe or scared. Which brings us to number three on our list of things we'll miss. The lack of ostentatious displays of personal wealth. It's been amazing to go two months without seeing a single McMansion. As our friend Michael is telling us, showing off your socioeconomic status is not culturally acceptable here. Even managers at big companies will have a Toyota sedan to drive to work, even if there's a Lamborghini in the garage at home. It's okay to be wealthy, just not flaunt it. Number two on our list is definitely the really positive interactions that we experience between parents and kids throughout our time in Japan. Yeah, for the most part, parents seem to really be genuinely enjoying the time they spent with their kids. And most of the parents that we saw did a really good job of finding a middle path between being lax with their kids and overly stern. It also just felt like it wasn't a big deal to take your kid out to the park or a restaurant or a museum. You know, in the U.S., you sometimes get the sense that going out for your, a half-hour walk with your kid takes preparation akin to traveling to Antarctica. You know, you got to get the stroller and the bag and all of the toys. And here, kids just seem to kind of get toted around, and they generally seem pretty chill about it. So that takes us to our number one on our list of things we'll miss most about Japanese culture. Drumroll, please. Societal respect for people in the service industry and the consistent professionalism of service industry workers. Man, Sarah, we make such good lists. <laughs> 
Well, yeah, but it's been so refreshing, though, to be in a place where people seem to understand that folks who drive taxis or work in hotels or man the cash register at a konbini are really playing a vital role in the overall function of society. And then as a corollary, people who have those jobs conduct themselves with a lot of self-respect and professionalism. Bus drivers are a prime example. Being a highway bus driver here seems to be on par with being a commercial airline pilot in the U.S. And the uniforms are even more professional. We're talking full suit and white gloves and fun little hat. And they have this amazing habit of narrating their driving and the bus ride in general in this very sort of calming voice where they're talking about, I will now take a left turn. I have taken the left turn. It was just so fun. They took it so seriously. I mean, I think in the U.S., though, we tend to regard some jobs as less prestigious than others, or assume that if someone is working a low-wage service job that they're doing something wrong or not pulling themselves up by their bootstraps. So it's been nice to visit somewhere where that assumption is not automatically made. Yeah, granted, there are some not-so-great things about Japan's economic system, like its lack of social safety net, but the respect for workers in general here has been really refreshing. So then let's end on a silly note. Our uh, list of top four lists of top four that didn't quite make the cut. So coming in at number four is... Top four episodes of Star Trek Voyager that we watched in Japan. It's actually my first time watching Voyager in its entirety, and like other Star Trek series, it has a kind of steadiness to it that was a pleasant counterbalance to all of the new and different things in Japan that didn't make sense. Okay, number three on our list of things that didn't quite make it to the show... Top four times, a horde of schoolchildren ran up to us screaming, Hello! <laughs> I mean, the fact that we seriously considered this as a list should indicate just how common an occurrence this was in Japan. And it never failed to make us smile, even if it could get a little overwhelming. And now for number two on our list of misfit lists. Top four times, John was too big for a thing. Another category that, had we selected it, had many a contender. I am looking forward to being back in a place where my head isn't constantly brushing the ceiling. Also, maybe hotel rooms where I can't touch the facing walls if I'm stretched out on the floor. Oh, and where my legs routinely fit under the table. I mean, there was even a time where we got into a ride at Tokyo Disney Sea, and the belt wouldn't go over my legs because they were too big. And the Disney lady there saw that and went, oh. <laughs> So that brings us to number one on our list of top fours that didn't quite make the cut. Top four toilets we experienced in Japan. I think the ubiquity of Toto toilets here also has a strong contender for things we most appreciated about Japan. And after traveling in Europe, we were thankful for the frequency and availability of free, clean public restrooms more broadly. I think at the end of the trip, most of the kanji that I learned actually turned out to be toilet related. Yeah, yeah. I now know the symbols for big flush, little flush, front bidet, rear bidet, and stop. Stop! <laughs> All very practical and real world things to know. And I'd also say that after seeing the newest line in Toto's Neo Rest collection, we can now also envision our dream bathroom in a future house. Well. I think that about wraps it up for this week, so join us next week from the other side of the globe when we'll be adjusting to the 12-hour time difference in Valparaiso, Chile. As always, our theme music is by Mark Barrett. Sayonara and happy trails, listeners. Mm -hmm.